0: Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mound before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over, As- over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall annoy it to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bound to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. We continue our series on the strange life of the prophet Elijah, and we do find him in trouble once again in our passage today. You may recall that uh, he confronted King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, and told him that the Lord is going to send a drought on the land, a devastating drought economically, politically, religiously. For three and a half years, there was no rain. And then that set up a confrontation between Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, with the prophets of Baal and Asherah. It's a dramatic event. We looked at it last week. It's a religious showdown on Mount Carmel. Well, the prophets of Baal prepared a sacrifice, and Elijah prepared a sacrifice. And whichever God responded with fire from heaven was the true God. It's pretty simple. And miraculously, amazingly, the Lord sent fire that consumed not only the sacrifice but the stone altar itself. So the people proclaimed that the Lord is God, and the priests of Baal were put to death. And then the Lord sent rain as a sign of His favor on His people. So that was then, Elijah has seen fire, he's seen rain, and... And it looked like there were just going to sunny days that would never end. <laughs> but, you know, I've been sitting on this one since we started this series. <clears throat> but, but that's it's not what happened. Uh, it, it, it felt like everything was, was, was great. Confrontation worked. The priests of Baal were defeated. Uh, it did feel like Ahab even was, was switching sides. And yet, we find Elijah today deeply discouraged, asking the Lord to take his life. He doesn't want to live anymore. I don't think he's suicidal as much as he just doesn't see a point of going on and doing what he's been doing. It seems like nothing's really changed. But we also see the Lord restoring Elijah in that deep discouragement the Lord meets him. In this cave on Mount Horeb and restores him, and so my question is, you know, what can we learn from this part of the story of Elijah? James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning that he's like us. Thus, we can learn from him. We can learn from his experience. So, I'd like us to this morning to identify with Elijah in these three things. I want us to identify with Elijah? <clears throat> excuse me, in his crisis. And I'm going to make a case that it is primarily a theological crisis that he is going through. So let's identify with Elijah in his crisis. Then secondly, let's identify with him in his quest. What does he do with that crisis? What does he do with his questions and discouragement? And finally, let's identify with Elijah in his experience of restoration. So his crisis, his quest, and his experience. Now, I believe that Elijah is... In a theological crisis. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, after the victory at Mount Carmel, Elijah runs to Jezreel. I mean, it's 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 an amazing thing. He is so excited. As by the way, some pastors are after church. I mean, there's your adrenaline just goes up, and he runs to Jezreel. Now, Ahab takes a chariot, but Elijah just runs. Now, he is so excited because what he's expecting is a national revival. Now, he's thinking the, the prophets of Baal are defeated. Idolatry of Israel has been exposed. What's the king going to do now? Of course, he's going to lead the nation back to the Lord. So the king is going to Jezreel, which is the, the capital. That's where the palace is at this time. Jezebel, his wife, is there. Ahab goes and tells Jezebel all that had happened on Mount Carmel, and in Elijah's mind, this is it, this is the victory. Now everybody's going to side with the Lord, nation is going to be revived, everything is going to change. The king and queen, the royal family, are going to lead this religious revival. And yet, once he gets to Jezreel, he gets a message from Jezebel. Jezebel was not as easily persuaded as, as Ahab was. Jezebel says, by this time tomorrow, you will be dead. Just like you killed all my priests, by this time tomorrow, you will be dead. This is what Elijah comes to. Now imagine the, the high of this victory on Mount Carmel, right? The run toward Jezreel, and he gets there, and the message is, you're going to die. And so Elijah runs for his life. Now, it is, you know Elijah by now. It is not like Elijah to be scared, right? He had been running for his life for three and a half years during the drought, hiding from Ahab. He's used to that. He's used to the persecution from the most powerful in the nation. So he runs for his life, yes, to preserve his life, but, but I think there's a deeper thing that's happening in his heart. Elijah is going through a theological crisis. He doesn't know who God is anymore. This is what's happening here. He doesn't know what to think about God, what to think about his life under God, what to think about his ministry. Why hasn't Israel embraced true worship? I mean, what else could God do? I mean, we've, we, none of us have ever experienced a miracle like Elijah, not only experienced, but led the whole nation in observing. Fire from heaven consuming the altar and the sacrifice it is clear who God is and which God is the true God and yet Israel is not revived why hasn't Jezebel been punished yet she keeps opposing the Lord why is the Lord delaying the punishment of Jezebel this pagan queen who was married to Ahab and has led Israel into idolatry why is the Lord being so inactive and not punishing her Elijah is running for his life after what happened in Mount Carmel, and he is deeply disillusioned. Now look at what he does, verse 3. He goes to Beersheba and leaves his servant there. Now Beersheba is in Judah, which is another kingdom, so he actually leaves the kingdom where God called him to serve. He goes to another kingdom, goes to Judah, goes as far south as he can. Remember, Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south, He goes as far south as he can, and then he goes farther into the wilderness. And he leaves his servant in Beersheba. Now, it may seem like no big deal, but really what this means is that a prophet is letting his staff go. He is effectively out of ministry at this point. He leaves his job. He's saying, I no longer need my assistant. Every prophet typically had an assistant. And Elijah says, I don't need you anymore because I don't really know what to do with this. I have done everything I could. I've been faithful. I've seen God do tremendous miracles, and nothing has changed. Verse 4, he goes into the wilderness. He sits down under a broom tree and prays for God to take his life. There's no reason for him to go on anymore. Now look at verse 10. This is how Elijah himself describes his theological crisis. I have been very jealous for the Lord, God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now Elijah says, I, I, I've done everything right, I've fulfilled my ministry, and yet I'm running for my life. I am the only faithful person left in Israel. And I'm about to die, so there's no hope. There's no future for Israel. And the Lord is apparently not doing anything. He's just letting Jezebel chase me. Alexander MacLair, an old English preacher, observes that Elijah insinuates in this report that he had been more zealous for God than God had been zealous for himself. That's why it's a theological crisis. Because Elijah says, I understand God better and God's purposes than God understands God and His purposes. This is what he's saying. He's like, I am the only one that's left and I've been so jealous for the Lord. And look what's happening. No, nothing. The Lord's not jealous for Himself. Elijah says in verse 4, I, I've had enough. He says, God, you might as well just take me home now. Because there's nothing else for me to do. I I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know who you are anymore. Now, do you see that at the heart of Elijah's discouragement is his disappointment with God? Now, he's used to hardship. He's used to persecution. He's used to going without. He's used to trusting God to protect him and provide for him. That's not a problem for Elijah. He's been trained in that kind of endurance. What he's really struggling with is he doesn't understand who God is anymore. His theology no longer fits his experience. His ministry, I mean, his whole life simply doesn't make sense anymore. Now, I'm sure that this is a familiar place for many of us. Have you been there? Have you been under the broom tree? Are you there right now? Maybe you are. Can you identify with what Elijah is feeling in the wilderness. Lord, I, I, I have been faithful in raising my children in the Lord and in the church and I took them to all the programs and yet now they reject Christ altogether. Lord, everything in my life has changed. I don't even know what my life is anymore. I can't work. I, I, I don't know where my friends are. My family has left me. Lord, what are you doing in my life? There's something wrong with my body and I go to the doctors and they don't know what's wrong and nobody can fix it and it's been going on for years. What, what, how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to, to think about life and what God is doing and what He calls me to do? Lord, the leader I looked up to has done something so awful that I am, I'm not sure that I can believe anything that I've learned from him. I don't know what's true anymore. Lord, the Bible says that what I feel inside, what makes me me, this this deep feeling of who I am, is wrong. The Bible tells me it's wrong. And so I I don't know who I am. How can I define myself? How can I express who I am? I I don't understand that contradiction. Lord, the foundations I had built... Everything I've based my life on have crumbled. They've just crumbled. And, and I'm really not sure who or what I can trust anymore. Lord, the work I've committed myself to just seems meaningless now. It just, just seems useless. I can't do it anymore. I can't go on anymore. Lord, where are you? Are you even who I think you are? what are you doing? Why are you not doing things that you said you were going to do? These are the questions that are going through Elijah's mind, and these are the questions that many of us have, or at least you have had it at a certain point in your life, and if you haven't, you will, and maybe you don't get to the depth of discouragement and disillusionment that Elijah goes to, but we all have these dips, where all of a sudden you realize that your theology, your understanding of God doesn't quite match your experience. And you feel like something has to be restructured here. Something has to be rethought, reconsidered. I have to adjust something because I can't live in contradiction anymore. Now, I remember a life like that in my life, just just so I'm honest with you. I, I, I went through that. I remember I was, you know, we lived in Ukraine. We were, we planted a church the church was doing well. The church was growing. God was blessed in our ministry. We had two kids, and, and we were pregnant with, with our third daughter. We bought a car. We put down roots. We were like, this is it. This is where God has us. And then Polina was born, diagnosed with Down syndrome, medical issues, and, and we were like, we, <laughs> we don't know. We don't know what's going on. What is God doing? And in the course of several weeks, we had to pack up, spread all our stuff around our friends and take whatever we could, ended up in southwest Michigan for a year. A lovely place, but theologically, I mean, what is going on? What is God doing with us? You know, because we thought He called us to be in Ukraine, to minister there, to live there forever, to raise children there. That's what we thought. And yet, all of a sudden, there's a completely different turn in life. And we had to adjust, we had to figure out whether our theology matched our experience. Now, I'm spending time on this because I really want us to see what Elijah is going through, because this is not uncommon. And to ignore this and to say, well, Christians don't struggle with that, is foolish, because we all struggle with that. We are finite beings and we're sinful and we live in a broken world, there's going to be lots of times in your life where things that you're going through just don't, they don't make sense. And they don't seem to match your understanding of God or reality. So that's, that's the crisis. That's a theological crisis primarily. It's between Elijah and God. Now, what do we do in a theological crisis? Or what should we do in a theological crisis? Well, look at what Elijah does. He goes to a cave on Mount Horeb, verses 8 and 9. He says, okay, I know what I need to do. I am making my way to a cave on Mount Horeb. Now, this requires explanation, right? (laughs) Why is this so obvious to him, but it's not to us? Well, you may know Mount Horeb by a different name, Mount Sinai, same mountain. Mount Sinai was a, a special place for Israel. Everybody knew what happened there. Certainly Elijah did. This is the place where God met with Moses. This is the place where God revealed himself to Moses. Now, if you want to read more about it, Exodus 33 is where you get this this story. And the story is that Moses asked God, I mean, this is an audacious request. He asked God to show him his glory, and God did it. Moses said, I I just want to see your glory. I want to know who you are. I mean, again, a theological crisis here. Moses says, I need to know who you are. Show me who you are. And so the Lord, to protect Moses, hides him in a cleft of the rock. You remember that story? He hides him so he can pass by, so the glory of the Lord can pass by. And Moses could could experience it but not be destroyed by it and still see and realize and, and recognize who God is. So the Lord does it for Moses. He reveals himself, he proclaims his name, he declares himself to be a God of grace and mercy, and Moses is utterly transformed by that experience. In fact, his face gets so bright and shiny, right, that people can't approach him, so he puts a veil on so he can talk to people. And of course, he takes the veil off when he talks to God because now he knows God, because he's seen God's glory. So Elijah says, okay, remember, he's in a the theological crisis, and Elijah says, where can I figure out who God really is? Where can I see the real God? Where, where can I see God's glory? And it says, I know. It's a cave on Mount Horeb, on Mount Sinai, a cave where God met with Moses. That's where I can get my theology right. This is where I can finally understand what God is like and what he's doing And by the way, in the text, the translation says, "A cave." The, the literal translation is "The cave." He's going to that cave. He's going to that cleft in the rock where Moses was, or at least that's what he wants to do. So he goes so he could see God's glory. Now, the question is, can you identify? With Elijah in his quest, not just in his crisis, but also in what he does with it. Where do you go when your theology is challenged or shattered? Where do you go? Where do you turn when you're not sure if your conception of life, your conception of God matches reality? What do you do? The biblical pattern is going to God himself directly. Consider the testimony of the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, and you should read the Psalms, that's the prayer book of the Bible, that's Jesus' prayer book. As you read the Psalms, you will see that people bring all sorts of stuff to God, and God does not turn them away. He doesn't do that. I mean, so I just read Psalm 88 yesterday. I mean, it's a terrible psalm. Do, Do not go to that psalm for encouragement, please. There is not a ray of hope in that psalm. I mean, that's the, that's the only one, to, to be fair. All the other Psalms, there's always hope. But Psalm 88 has no hope in it. It's in the Bible. <laughs> it's in your Bible because God wants you to know that you can bring that to Him. Heman, the, the Ezraite, just, has, just complains and blames God and, and sees no way out of his of His darkness. And yet, that prayer is recorded in the Bible because God answered that prayer. So, so when you think about what to do with this crisis, what to do with your doubts, what to do with your challenging questions, your most outrageous complaints, Scripture tells us to go to God, to bring it directly to Him no matter how dark it is. This is what God wants. He wants us to process our struggles with Him. Now, the tragedy of many deconstruction stories is not that the issues that lead a person to leave the faith are not real. That's not the tragedy. The tragedy is that many try to deal with these real issues away from God, away from His Word, and away from His church. Now, I'm talking about many, many stories that you hear everywhere of of Christians who are saying, I no longer believe the Bible, I no longer believe the gospel, I have deconstructed my faith, I have deconverted. That's what I'm referring to. And what I'm saying is that the questions they have are real, that the crises they go through are real by and large. But what they do with those questions is not right, because they take those questions away from God away from the church, away from his word. And you can't figure out a theological crisis without God because he's the theology in your crisis, you see. You have to do it with him. You have to go directly to him. And Elijah goes to this cave on Mount Sinai because this is where God is. And this is where his understanding of God can be straightened out. Now, to show you how much God wants us to take our doubts and discouragement to Him, look at verses 5 through 8. This is a a marvelous, just a, a very encouraging part of the story. Twice, an angel comes to Elijah and feeds him. This is all the angel does. He comes and he cooks for him, and he gives him bread and water. Twice, right? The angel is not addressing any of his spiritual issues, right? There's no rebuke. There's no correction. There's no, yeah, but you remember what the Bible says. None of this, right? All he does, this angel sent by God, is restoring Elijah physically. There's no spiritual here. It's just physical stuff. Why? Because God does not want Elijah to be too exhausted to get to Mount Horeb. Now, this is incredible, that God sends an angel to sustain his servant physically so that he can spiritually restore him later. This is how much God cares for us. Sometimes, friends, you just need a sandwich, you don't need a sermon, right? You just need a sandwich. And if you eat the sandwich, then you might listen to the sermon. This is what the angel is doing. He's actually ministering to Elijah where Elijah is because Elijah is burnt out. He's tired. He just needs some food, and God does that for him. I remember I had a friend who was a, a pastor um, in, in Ukraine, and Vova knows him. Really. Vova came out of his church, so um, so this pastor was you know sometimes getting burnt out, difficult ministry, and he would just go to his mentor in another city. And just, just for a break, just for a couple of days of just get away from the ministry. And, and what, what he remembers most about those times are not the deep theological conversations and the encouragement, right, that his mentor gave him. He remembers pancakes and coffee. He remembers the smell of coffee in the morning and the pancakes in the morning because that's what actually restored him. He needed the physical so he can get to the spiritual. This is exactly what God is doing with Elijah, we see God provide what we need on the way to a place where He can restore us. As one theologian said, Christ is not only our destination, but He is also our companion on the way. Christ is where we're going, but we're going there with Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? We move toward God But we move there with God. He's moving with us. I mean, isn't that remarkable? God does not sit back and say, I'm going to wait for Elijah to make it to the cave at Mount Horeb, and then, then I will minister to him. No, God sends an angel to sustain Elijah so he can get to Mount Horeb, so he can get the spiritual encouragement there. So where do you go in your theological crisis? Do you go to God? This is where God wants you to go. He wants you to go to Him, and He will help you get there. Trust Him to provide what you need to make the journey and see His glory. Now, it might take longer than you think. After this encounter with the angel, Elijah takes 40 days and 40 nights to get there. This is, it's not an easy trip. Now, the Lord gives him enough food to sustain him. He goes in the strength of the food he receives. He's got enough strength to get there, but it takes him 40 days and 40 nights to get there. Sometimes that journey between, you know, the sandwich from God and his glory, right? It can take you longer than you think, but he will sustain you and he will get you there and he will show you his glory because that's what he wants. And finally, let's identify with Elijah and his experience in his restoration, because this is the buildup. Everything is going towards that, right? So what happens when Elijah finally gets to the cave? I mean, this is a... If you don't know this passage, you're welcome. I mean, this is a beautiful passage to, to know, because this tells us how God deals with, how gentle God is with his people. Elijah gets to the cave at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and, and he's expecting the Lord to do something, right? So there's a great wind, tearing into the mountain, breaking rocks apart. I mean, surely this is God, right? But the Lord is not in the wind. Now, the Lord has done that before. So it's not unreasonable for Elijah to expect that this is how the Lord is going to show himself, but the Lord is not in the wind. Then there's an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. Now, the Lord has done, Many times the Lord has, has caused an earthquake in an epiphany when he shows up, but not this time. And then there was a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. Fire, earthquake, wind are all uh, manifestations of God's holiness, of God's power, of God's overwhelming majesty. These are all true things that God does, but this is not what Elijah needed. When the storm quiets down, there comes the sound of a low whisper. The Lord doesn't come in the fire. He doesn't come in the earthquake. He doesn't come in the, in the wind. But he comes in the sound of a low whisper. Now, the old translation says, a still, small voice. I mean, you read a story like that and you're saying, this is God. I mean, this is what he does. This is where your theology starts getting adjusted, right? Because I expected him to come in the fire. But he comes in a low whisper. Now, Elijah already saw the fire, right, on Mount Carmel. He saw the manifestation of God like that. What he needs now, he needs to talk with God as friends talk to each other face to face. He needs a personal experience with God, and this is what God gives him. Now, let me give you an example. Maybe you love John Legend. Switching gears a little bit. Maybe you love John Legend, and through a friend of a friend, you hear that John Legend would like to meet you. You're overjoyed, of course. You, you invite him to, his, to your house, and you wait with great anticipation for his visit. When John Legend comes, he doesn't dance. He doesn't sing. He doesn't play the piano. He just pulls up a chair, and he looks at you with his beautiful eyes, Right? <laughs> and he just talks with you this is what god is doing with elijah he doesn't come in power he doesn't come in his great majesty he doesn't come in judgment he pulls a chair so he can talk to elijah face to face he whispers so that elijah has to lean in to listen to him you see This is very relational. This is very tender. This is very gentle because this is who God is, and this is what Elijah needed to know about God. This is what God does, doesn't he? When Job goes through his theological trial, what's the resolution? God shows up, right? Now, what God says to Job is what Job needs to hear. It's not what Elijah needs to hear, but ultimately it's God. God is there speaking with him. When Thomas has his theological crisis, right, and misses the one time that he should have been there. Everybody was there, and Jesus was there, and he missed it, and he has to wait another week, right? Remember that. And when Jesus shows up, what does he do? Does he come in, in fire and, 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 and power? No. He just says, Thomas, I'm here. Put, put your fingers right here. This is me. Same with Saul on the, on the road to Damascus when When Saul, going through his theological crisis, right? These are all similar circumstances. And the Lord just shows up. Now he blinds him because that's what Saul needed. And then he talks with him and restores him. Now what does God say in this low whisper that comes to Elijah? Well, in verse 13, the Lord asks Elijah what he was doing there. The Lord asks him a question Now, of course, the Lord doesn't need Elijah to answer the question, to tell him what's really going on. He's not after information. What he wants is is he wants for Elijah to express what he's feeling, to process it with him. He's engaging him in conversation. Do you tell the Lord what you're feeling? When you pray, do you express your desires to him? Do you go to the Lord and say, this is what's on my heart you know this is what this is what i'm feeling this is what i'm struggling with the lord wants you to do that the lord wants you to bring your desires your questions your doubts which don't don't try to be correct in expressing it just express it to him then in verses 15 through 17 the lord tells elijah what he is going to do next. You see, the Lord is not done working in Israel yet. Now, Elijah thinks it's all over, but God's not done yet. He's still working. So, he directs Elijah to act according to God's plan. This is verses 15 through 17. He says, go find... Hezael to be king over Assyria, go find Jehu to be the next king of Israel, and go find Elisha to take your place when you are done with this ministry. These three leaders will accomplish God's purposes in Israel. God is not done working. So he's telling Elijah what he's about to do. And then in verse 18, you see that the Lord shows Elijah what he has been doing, something Elijah doesn't see. He's lost sight of it. Elijah keeps saying that he's the only faithful person left, right? Every time he, he tells you why he's there, he says, I'm the only one, there's nobody else, and, I, and they're about to kill me. But the Lord says there are 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal and have not kissed his image. Now, 7,000 is probably a symbolic figure, meaning there's a lot of people that are faithful to the Lord besides you. You think you're the only one but there's lots of other people who are faithful to me. Things are never as bleak as we think because God is always working, even when we we can't see it, and then you go to him and he reveals it to you, and you realize, oh, there's lots of stuff going on here that I just was completely missing. Now, when you consider your own particular struggle You need to hear that God is not done working yet. God still has lots of plans that He's going to accomplish. And you need to know that He's working in ways that we cannot see right now. There are invisible workings of God that you don't know about. Eventually you will. You'll see the results of that. Elijah needed to hear those things from God Himself, and maybe some of us need to hear the same things from him as well because there's always hope when you are dealing with God now how can we have similar experience of restoration in our own doubts and struggles should we just pack up and go to Mount Horeb find the cave right wait for the Lord to come not in the wind not on the fire but in a still small voice no in John 1.14, we're told the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. God became flesh. Jesus came as the God-man, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Meaning that if you want to see God's glory, if you want your theology adjusted, you go straight to Jesus. Jesus because He is the expression, the definitive and final expression of God's glory. The revelation of God's character is made available to us in Jesus Christ who became human, lived among us, died for our sins, rose for our justification, and rules over His church and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Now, there's another event in the New Testament, that is very similar to First Kings 19. It also has a mountain. It has God's voice. It has God's shining glory. It has Elijah, and it has Moses, right? And it has Jesus. Matthew 17, 1 through 7. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to God, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came from the cloud and said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Now this sounds so similar, doesn't it? It gives us a pattern. It gives us an encouragement to go to Jesus and hear from him that we must have no fear. The Christian poet Malcolm Geit has an interesting theory. I'll share it with you, but I trust that if you believe it, great. If not, if you challenge me, that's fine. But it's an interesting theory. He wonders if Moses' interaction with God on Mount Horeb and God showing him his glory, Elijah's interaction with God on Mount Horeb and his still small voice, And what the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, he wonders if that's not the same event. Now, if God is the Lord of time, right? Is it possible, is it possible that when Elijah went to Mount Horeb and hid himself in that cave, that it actually was Jesus who appeared to him? And he saw his glory, and this still small voice was the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Is it possible that Moses was also there at a different time and yet at the same time experiencing the same event, Jesus Christ coming and revealing the glory of God? Is it too hard to wrap your mind around? Yes, it is. I don't know if that's true or not, but is it possible? I think maybe. Now, regardless of whether you agree with Guy or not, whether that's the same exact event or if it's a number of different events, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has become our glorious cave. It's the gospel that we hear, and through it we hear the whisper of God, the still, small voice of God. It's in Christ that God comes over, that God comes near, that God pulls up a chair to speak with us. It all happens through Christ and through His gospel. Because Jesus went through the same experiences we are going through. He can share our deepest struggles because He understands. In the gospel, we see that the Lord is not done with us yet. He removes our guilt through the sacrifice of Jesus. He gives us a new life through His resurrection. And He continues to work with us and in us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent His Spirit so He can keep doing the work of Jesus in us. God's plan continues to unfold. Jesus will come again and complete His work of redemption. And all who are His will be saved. And the whole creation will be made new. And you hear that in the gospel. And in the gospel, you find hope. Whatever your theological crisis When you actually go and remind yourself of the gospel, when you see Jesus, when you recognize once again what Jesus has done, this is where your theology gets adjusted and this is where hope returns to you. Because things are not as bleak as they seem when we remember the gospel. Imagine what the disciples felt when Jesus was crucified. Theological crisis, no question. It's all over. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And now he's dead. So Jesus meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus to explain to them what he's been doing, what they didn't see, and what he is about to do through his spirit and through his church. What should we do when we find ourselves in a theological crisis, big or small? We should remember the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And we should behold God's glory in his face, which is what we're going to do at the table.